Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, our text this morning will be verses 11 to 18. Last Lord's Day, we went over the first 10 verses dealing with the empty tomb, the implications of that. We talked about the, the sequence of events as to how some of this would have been tied in together with the other Gospels. Because in the other Gospels we read that the women went to the tomb. It was the women who were together who saw the angels and heard the announcement from the angels. But we see something a little different with John's Gospel. That it really just mentions Mary Magdalene. Mary going to the tomb. Seeing that the, the stone was rolled away so she immediately runs back to Peter and John saying they've taken the Lord. We don't know where they've laid him. So it was obvious that Mary Magdalene was not there to hear the announcement from the angels as the other women were. So probably what has happened is that the women were all going to meet there that morning in order to finish anointing Jesus' body. Perhaps they were all traveling together or perhaps even Mary got there before the others. She saw the stone rolled back, immediately thought that someone had taken him. So perhaps as the other women are getting to the tomb, Mary is running to go get Peter and John. And it was there that the other Gospels record that the women had seen the angels, and the angels had announced to them that he is not here, he is risen. So then you have Peter and John coming back to the tomb, Along with Mary Magdalene, they both look into the tomb. They see it's empty. They see his clothes there. They see the grave clothes still there, wrapped as if a body should be there, but there's no body there. So upon these things, John John comes to the conclusion that perhaps he has risen. Because the word that is used there to speak of John believing is to believe unto faith. Peter doesn't know what to believe. Peter's still trying to theorize all this in his mind according to the wording that's there. And so they go away again to their own homes. But now we're going to find Mary Magdalene is going to stay there at the tomb. And she's going to have one of the greatest blessings that any could have. There's definite implications of that we see in this passage. uh, How grief can truly blind us to the truth of God. God's word of the truth of God. We see how it takes the voice of the son of God, the good shepherd, to awaken us to the reality of things. The blessedness of the ascension of Christ. Sometimes we don't look at the ascension of Christ as being a vital part of his completed work. But indeed it is. And the great communion that we have with the Holy Spirit as a result of his ascension. And then, of course, we find in this text as well, the great blessing of being able to announce the good news of Christ's completed work. There is much here, and I pray that it will encourage our hearts and comfort us 
to gaze upon our Lord even more with greater affection. Let's look at this passage together. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Here in John chapter 20, we'll read verses 11 to 18. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Let's pray together. Holy Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us of the completed work of Christ and the blessedness of, of knowing Christ, of receiving the benefits of our Lord Jesus from his accomplished work. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would guide our, guide our thoughts, guide us through this passage, and teach us that we may grow in our understanding, grow in our relationship to you, grow in our desires and affections for you, for all that you've done for us. We ask these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> you know, we have talked about, just to say this at the beginning... We talked about a few Sundays back, giving a lot of the evidences and all of that for the resurrection. How within this passage of scripture, beginning in chapter 20, that there's a number of things there that give us evidence that the resurrection is a historical fact. And one in particular that has not been mentioned yet is looking at this portion of God's word. The very fact that one of the first witnesses of the resurrection being a woman is itself uh, an, an evidence of the truth of the resurrection. And the reason that I say that is unfortunately at this particular time in history, the Jews did not recognize the testimony of a woman to be reliable. In fact, they would look at the testimony of a woman being less reliable than that of a criminal. The very fact that all four gospel writers record that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were the women, and that the women were the first ones to go and announce that he is risen, is a testimony to that truth. Because if it was a made-up story, if it was a fictional account, the writers of the gospels would not have put this in here, 
because they knew that people would look down on it saying, how can you trust the reliability of their testimony? But all four gospel writers do indeed record that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of our Lord were indeed the women, which shows something about the value of women within the Christian faith itself, the dignity of women. And we see that again here. This, this whole scene is one that is, I know you, you can see uh, and, and even try to picture yourself feeling this kind of sorrow and this kind of grief that Mary Magdalene must have been feeling. But then you have that, that great source of joy that comes that you know what's coming, but you have to get through this portion first. She's at, she's at the tomb. She's, she's not perhaps understood what John has understood. John's seen the empty tomb. He's seen the clothes there. He's seen the, the, the cloth that covered his face lying in a separate place. By these particular things, he's believed. Again, Peter doesn't know what to believe, but these two go back home. Mary Magdalene is still there. She's still at the tomb. She's still weeping. She's still grieving. She is sorrowful because of her great love that she has for Christ and the fact of someone or the, the even the thought of someone stealing his body is it just repulsive to her. It was a repulsive uh, to the Jew. I mean, it was a great crime to steal uh, the corpse out of a grave. But here she is. She doesn't know where he is. And her sorrow is such that even when she looks into the tomb and she sees two angels there, that it still does not click with her. I mean, you're looking into the tomb. Nobody's there. Peter and John are scratching their head. John looks in there again. He believes. And they simply walk away. But when she stoops in to look, she sees two people in there. That in itself should have made her go, what's going on? You weren't there just a few moments ago when Peter and John was over here. But her grief is so overwhelming that she does not have any thought of any truth of the resurrection. This has not come into her mind yet. She is still blinded by her own grief. Even when she's talking to them, one's at the head of where Jesus would have been laying, the other is at the feet of where Jesus would have been laying, which in itself I think has some great significance too. Because when you look on the Ark of the Covenant, you have the two cherubim that are sitting on the Ark of the Covenant, and with their wings they're covering the mercy seat. And when you have the resurrection account itself and you're looking into the empty tomb, you have, again, two angels that are sitting there at the head and the feet of where Christ would have been laying. They ask her, why are you weeping? And in one sense you could see this perhaps as a, even a mild rebuke. Why are you weeping? You should know that this should be a time of joy. But again, she doesn't understand that. And her grief is, is genuine. I mean, she, she loved the Lord Jesus. He was her master. They all thought that he was going to be the one to deliver them. They had a great hope. That's what the disciples on the road to Emmaus said. We hoped that he was the one. 
And perhaps that hope had been dashed. But even when speaking to them, she does not consider the resurrection. They ask her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. She still thinks his body's been stolen. She's not looking for a risen Christ. This should be a time of joy. This should be a time of reflection, remembering what he had said while he was alive. He had said on a number of occasions that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, be crucified, and to rise again on the third day. He said that a number of times. But as of this particular point, they have no hope in that. She had no hope in that. She did not consider that. Grief had blinded her to the truth of God's word. We can, we can identify with that. We can truly identify with that in our, own, in our own lives throughout the things that we've gone through, especially in the time that you lose a loved one. In the time that you lose a loved one, especially if they are a believer, especially knowing that, that they are with Christ, that there is, there is that few days, weeks, that even though you have people that want to try to comfort you and they come to you and they tell you the truth, your, your loved one is with Christ. Your loved one is more alive now than they ever could have been here. They are, they are in the presence of the king who saved them. And while all of that is true, there's that one part of us that says, I don't want to hear it. It's a time that I should be joyful knowing that my loved one is now with Christ, that their time is done, and now they've entered into uh, the glory that was awaiting them. And it's a time to, to consider, wow, think of what they're seeing. Think of, think of them being at the feet of Christ right now. And we don't think that. In a, in a weird kind of dynamic, and I want to be cautious how I say this, it's as if for those few moments, days, or perhaps even weeks, that in one sense, we want to feel bitter. We want to feel bitter because while all those things are true, they're still not here. I know that these things are true, but they're still not here. And I want to feel that bitterness because I'm, I'm angry at the Lord right now. Or perhaps not even the anger has overtaken us as much as the sorrow itself, the grief. And we often blind ourselves from, from the truth of God that, the, you know, the scripture says, precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. The Apostle Paul, when he's talking about death in Philippians 1, he says, I'm torn between the two. This isn't something he was afraid of. It isn't something that, that he would, would caution anybody on. No, please help to, my life to continue. I don't want to die yet. He was like, I'm torn between the two. I have this great desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But for me to stay here and to bear more fruit, that's, that's better for you. The way that we look at death is so much different at times. And when our loved one passes away, 
Even though it is a time that is, is a sad time, there's no denying that. But it is also a time to be reminded of what we know to be true. That's why we don't grieve as those that have no hope. That's why the scriptures emphasize uh, emphasize those things. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. But we have a great hope that is in Christ. And our loved ones dying in Christ are in his presence. So we can identify with Mary Magdalene here. We, we know what, that, what that's like to feel that kind of grief, that kind of sorrow where we're just blinded to anything else concerning the truth of God, concerning the truth of our loved one. That's in the state that she, that, that's the state that she's in right now. She's not looking for a risen Savior. She's overcome with sorrow and grief. Even after talking to them, even after talking to two angels, we don't know where they've laid him. Don't, we don't really know what it was necessarily that made her turn around. Whether she heard something behind her, or maybe the angels were motioning. Look over there. But she turns around and she sees someone that she supposes to be the gardener. She doesn't recognize it's Jesus. Now, how can that be? How is it that she cannot look at this man and see that it is Jesus? Well, for the very same reason that we're talking about, she's so overcome with grief, she's not expecting to see a risen Jesus. She doesn't, she doesn't expect to see the Christ standing before her. And so he asks her the same question. Woman. Why are you weeping? But he adds this in here. Whom are you seeking? I notice he didn't say, what are you looking for? As if, because she's looking for a dead body. He doesn't say, what are you looking for? Instead, he says, whom are you looking for? Because he's once again building it up for her to understand that it's not a what, it's not a corpse that she's looking for, but it's the man himself who is risen from the dead. And there's that, again, that mild rebuke. Why are you weeping? Again, because this is a time of joy that should be coming over Mary she says to him, supposing him to be the gardener, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Now, this is one of the most uh, tender portions of Scripture, I think. Because if you just think of this, this whole scene, our Lord Jesus Christ has endured the wrath of Almighty God on the cross. He has satisfied the justice of his Father. He has died a real death. And now he's risen from the grave. And as Paul says, and through, through his resurrection, he's made an open show of all the principalities and powers, all the forces of darkness. He's overcome them 
by his resurrection, as you read in uh, other portions of Scripture in Hebrews 2, he's rendered Satan powerless by his resurrection and his victory over death and all of this. But after doing all this, what's he doing? He's going to one of his disciples and comforting them. After conquering the forces of darkness, his attention is given to one of his disciples, specifically Mary. One writer says, His people are not mere numbers in a book. They are individual people with individual needs, and he knows them through and through. That's beautiful. You're not a mere number in a book. But he knows you by name. He knows you intimately and he attends to your needs specifically. That's the kind of Savior that you have. The kind of Lord who cares for you. This is the Christ. This is the one who died for you. As Richard and I were talking a few weeks ago and he had brought up something that our former pastor had said that he had brought about that when Christ was on the cross he had you on his mind that he died for you individually he was thinking of you he wasn't just thinking of a group of people that his father was going to give him he was thinking of every individual disciple of his everyone who would call upon his name he knows you through and through he knows your needs and he attends to your needs and even after conquering the forces of darkness While he could sit on his cosmic throne, ruling and reigning, he attends to the needs of Mary Magdalene specifically. That's how much he cares for his people. And that's how much he cares for you. So he says this to Mary. All he has to do is say her name. Overcome with grief and sorrow... And all he has to do is to say her name, Mary. And immediately she recognizes the voice of the good shepherd. Because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's, I mean, that's so encouraging and comforting because in the time of grief and sorrow and everything else you're blind to, all it takes is the effectual calling of God, the calling of, of, the, of, the, of the Lord himself to call you back. That's, that's, that's our Lord Jesus showing us that he is the good shepherd. He knows you by name individually. He calls upon He calls upon you in your time of need. That your eyes will not be fixated on what it is that you're going through, but now that your your eyes will be fixated upon him. Don't look here. Look to me, he says. One writer says, Thus in Mary. We have a lively image of our calling. For the only way in which we are admitted to a true knowledge of Christ is by that voice with which he especially calls the sheep which the Father has given to him. You see that, you see that in Mary right here. All he has to do is call her name. 
and she turns, and you can only imagine the great joy that she has. She recognizes his voice, and she says, Rabboni, Rabbi, teacher. And the very fact that he begins to say to her, stop clinging to me, must have been that she ran right to him, and she grabs him at his feet, and she can't let go. Because she's so overcome with joy. He's alive. He's standing right here. What great joy that she must have experienced at that particular moment. Hearing his voice and seeing the one whom she was grieving over standing there. He was ministering to her. He didn't have to show himself to her. He had already had the angels to announce before that he was arisen. But he especially appears to her. She really is the first eyewitness of his resurrection. It was granted to her. Why do you think it was granted to her? Why specifically her or even the women? If, if perhaps the other women were there. Because the other gospel writers do record that he appeared to them, so they must have been nearby, perhaps. Why didn't he appear to Peter and John? Why didn't the angels appear to Peter and John? Why just to the women? One thought of that is, is you think of the dedication and the love that the women had, that they would come to the tomb on that particular day while the others are in hiding, out of their devotion to him to come and to finish anointing his body, that because of their great faithfulness to him, that he rewarded them, allowing them to see him first. Maybe that's true. The sorrow of our unbelief is really extinguished when the master calls. And he once again focuses our eyes upon him. That though we continue to experience things, even perhaps the grief that we were experiencing prior to uh, the Lord calling us again, it is much more bearable when the truth of God is able to penetrate your heart to recognize and understand the reality of how things are for those who die in Christ or whatever it is that you're going through. Now look at, this is one of his disciples who had uh, been delivered from demons. She was one that helped to support his ministry, one that walked with him. And he is going to, the, the things that he says here is really going to kind of, Make us to scratch our heads for a moment because the implications of what he's saying is that it's going to be better for her that he leave. Just as he says to the disciples, it's, it's expedient that I go. It's better that I go. And I'm like, how, how is that? Well, hold that thought for a minute. <clears throat> but he says here, verse 17, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now what does he mean by that? Stop clinging to me. Stop holding on to me. It could be 
that Mary had thought that since he is alive, that the fellowship was going to go back to the way it was. She walked with him, ate with him, sat at the table, heard his words. Maybe she thought that things were going to go back to the way that they were beforehand. But what Jesus is going to say to her, and the implications of what he's saying to her rather, is that it's going to be even better when I go. There was that, that there's not going to be any more unhindered fellowship there. Whereas beforehand, the fellowship that they had and the communion that they had was, was severed for those couple of days. The fact that he's going to ascend to the Father because what he's saying to her is implied that his, it's necessary for him to ascend to the Father. Stop holding on to me physically. I've not yet ascended to the Father. He can also be telling her too, in one sense, maybe in a temporal sense, it's okay to let go of me, I'm not leaving yet. I'm not yet ascended yet. But what, what is implied there? The very fact that he's going to ascend in, into heaven to be with the Father is going to mean even greater blessing for the people of God. Now we look at that and we would say, well, we would kind of be in the same situation as Mary. We would want to cling to him. We want to see him physically. But what he's saying is it's going to be even better because the Holy Spirit is going to come in the fullness measure upon every believer and the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. He is Christ's presence on earth. He is the one who dwells with believers, in believers, empowering believers, and that fellowship will never be hindered by anything that goes on in this life. There's not going to come a point in which for them Christ had died and there was, there was nothing for three days and then he comes back alive. There's going to be nothing like that. Nothing is going to keep us from being in the presence of God, experiencing the presence of God, knowing the presence of God, any of that. Because as Christ ascends into heaven, the scripture says, he who ascended into heaven is the one who gave gifts to men. And the gift that he has given to his church is the fullness of the Holy Spirit to be his presence on earth. But that, didn't, that couldn't occur unless he had ascended to the Father, having completed his work, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and both he and the Father send the Holy Spirit in the fullest measure. The ascension is so vital to the completed work of Christ, too. Because it's going to be at this point that the Holy Spirit is sent, and the Holy Spirit applies to every believer the full benefits of being in Christ. And one in particular that is in this passage. He says, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. One of the great blessings of salvation itself is that we have the privilege of being children of God. Being adopted into the family of God. And it is by the Holy Spirit who comes through His work in us that we are adopted into the family of God. 
So that's why it's necessary that Christ enter into heaven, having completed his finished work. He sits at the right hand of the Father. They send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit applies the benefits to all of the bride of Christ. And if you think about the, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, you think of all the benefits that come to the people of God. That we are effectually called. The master calls our name and makes us alive. He regenerates us. Makes us born again. Causes us to be born again. He, he grants us faith that we can call upon Christ. And through that faith we're justified in the sight of God. And then we're adopted into the family of God. We're sanctified. We have union with Christ. A union that will never be severed. We persevere in the faith. Because of the Holy Spirit working within us. And then ultimately we will be glorified in Him. These blessings are applied to us by the Holy Spirit specifically. So that when you look at salvation as a whole. You see how the triune God is working in salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Working in order to secure the salvation of His people. To apply the benefits to them. To make them ready for the great day in which we will be called into the presence of God. The one blessing that is spoken of here or implied is that of being adopted into the family of God. Now this is, this is wonderful because you think of the disciples. The disciples have abandoned him. They ran off whenever he was getting arrested. Peter has denied him. And yet... Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, go tell my brothers. He doesn't say, go tell those guys that deserted me that they shouldn't have done that because I'm alive. He says, go tell my brothers. He considers even those that had deserted him, even those that had denied him, he still considers them. Brothers, family. So as we have entered into the, the family of God, it's been done by the Holy Spirit of God, whereby we can cry out, Abba, Father, as the scriptures say, that he is not just our, our master and, and all of that, but he is also referred to as our father. And we can call upon him as he is our father. Even when we have deserted him, even when we have openly denied him, yet Christ still looks at us and he calls us brothers. Brothers and sisters. Family. How can he do that? Well, one, he secured our salvation and enduring the wrath of God and satisfying his justice against the sins that we would commit. And then the Holy Spirit is now sent to us to unite us forever to Christ that we can call upon the Father as Father and not as sovereign and supreme judge. I go to my Father and to your Father, he says. What a forgiving Savior that we have. How... How gracious and merciful he is. That's why that when we look at passages like this, as, as I've shared with you about, 
Like Jonah, for example, when we were going through the book of Jonah, I'm so grateful for passages like this that remind me and remind you that even in the times in which we are just by our behavior, by our words, by our thoughts, whatever, openly denying him because we are indulging in that which is against him, yet he does not forsake us, he does not desert us, he says, I have secured you. You're mine. You're my brothers and my sisters. You're joint heirs with me. That should give us some great encouragement to our hearts. Because we beat ourselves up very badly at times. Thinking of what it is that we do. And how wrong that it is, what we say, how we fail. Oh Lord, why do you have anything to do with me? We often think perhaps. Or how can I be saved when I've thought that or I've said that? And that's why that our assurance of salvation is not, not in how well we do. Our assurance is in the one whom the object of our faith is in. The object of our faith is Christ. The object of our faith is not how well I do. I don't have faith in myself. I'm going to be sorely disappointed if I have faith in myself. My faith is in Christ himself. He's the object of my faith. Therefore, he has to be the assurance of my salvation. He's my assurance. He's your assurance. That's so, that's just beautiful language right there. Considering everything that has happened thus far. Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And as he does so, he sends the Holy Spirit in the fullest measure at the day of Pentecost. That's the significance of Pentecost. The, the Spirit coming in the fullest measure upon all believers. Now, the other blessing that Mary is privileged to have, along with the other women as we read in the other Gospels, not only to understand the blessedness of, of being the, the first eyewitness, to hear the words that he says of those that, that are his, that they are, that, that they are his family. But she, she's privileged to be the first one to go announce it. Go tell them. And so Mary came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. One writer had said that Christ made her an apostle to the apostles. But how true that is, isn't it? Apostle is one who is sent in this, at this particular situation. She was privileged to be the first one to go announce it. These are the things that he said to me. He appeared and he said he will meet you in Galilee. What a privilege that she had. 
you see the beginning, perhaps, of, of what the Great Commission would be. It's simply announcing. Announcing the good news. That is what, that is what we're called to do as well. That is our task. That's our responsibility, and it should be one that, that if we think about it, as we're looking at Mary and we're saying about Mary, she was blessed to be able to do this. Do we look at it in the same way for ourselves, that we are blessed to be able to go and to announce the good news? How is it that we're blessed? Well, one, we have received the mercy and the grace of God ourselves. We have, we have that familial language that is applied to us, that we're in the family of God. We can call upon God as our Father. That blessedness that we have received, it should be then that that moves us, moves our hearts, motivates us to then go out and say, I have an announcement for you. This is what Christ has accomplished and that you can be forgiven. Instead of looking at it as a blessing, we often look at it as, hmm, what are they going to say? Am I going to have to argue? Am I going to have to debate? Am I going to have to hear bad things said to me? We come up with a, a number of reasons or whatever it is to you individually that causes that fear in us. Are people going to think I'm a goody-goody or whatever? But no. Instead, we should be thinking, I have good news. And I want to tell you this good news. I want to tell you about what the Son of God has done. Well, I don't believe in that. Well, I understand because I didn't either. But I'm going to share it with you. And it's so, it, it, it's amazing how it is that the Lord can work in somebody's heart. Um, one, um, one account uh, that MacArthur was talking about once, he was, he was witnessing to a man and sharing the gospel with him. And the man said, he pretty much interrupted and he said, you mean to tell me you believe that a guy actually got swallowed by a fish? And MacArthur said, we'll get to Jonah in a minute. Let me, let me finish telling you about what Christ has done. By the end, this man had believed he was converted. And so then MacArthur said, so do you want to talk about Jonah? And the man said, well, no. I mean, if it's in there, then and I believe it. Like, how can that happen? How does that work? A few moments ago, you're like adamantly throwing up things just to stop the conversation. And then by the end of it, you're like, oh, I believe that. It's kind of the same scenario with the thief on the cross, isn't it? He's hurling insults at Christ along with the other guy. And then all of a sudden, he's like, we deserve this. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How can that happen? Because Christ has ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit is sent here in order to gather the bride. That All that it takes is the Holy Spirit to work in the heart of a person and immediately they can come to faith. That's the power of God. 
And that's not us. That's not in how articulate we can present the gospel, how eloquent our speech, what kind of a great defense that we can make. It's all the Holy Spirit. As Jesus says, Spirit is like the wind, right? You see the effects of it. You can't beckon him to come whenever you desire. As he says about the wind, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it's coming or where it's going. So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. You can't will the Spirit to come, but you see the effects of the Spirit when you see people coming to faith in Christ. So all we are to do is to give the announcement, to declare the truth. We worry ourselves too much. Well, what if they don't believe? Well, they may not. But if they don't, it's not because you didn't do it right. As long as you were giving what the gospel really is. It's not because you didn't do it right. It's not because you didn't say enough. It's not because you didn't make a, a, a well-structured argument. The Spirit moves as He wills. It's by His doing that we are in Christ Jesus. So the blessedness of being able to announce the good news is, is just that. We're announcing it. We're declaring it. And the results is left up with the Lord. We're telling them of, of the blessedness that we have received. Whether they believe it or not does not mean that evangelism is not successful. What makes evangelism successful is that we're faithful in doing it. And we should want to do it. Because it is a blessing. As we're looking at Mary and we're saying the very same thing. Wow. What a blessing it was to her to go to the very ones that just looked into the tomb, scratching their head, not sure what to expect here. And then she goes and says, oh, he's alive. He appeared to me. There is that, that privilege that we have, dear friends. To speak of, the, of the, the death and the resurrection of Christ, to speak of what he has accomplished on behalf of sinners, to tell them of the blessing of being adopted into the family of God. That you can call upon God as Father, where maybe for some, well, I didn't have a good father. Well, maybe you didn't. And that's why you'll never be disappointed with him. Because he is everything that a father should be. And even more. Well, he hasn't done anything good for me. Hmm. Well, let's talk about that. You're still alive. You're still breathing. So therefore, he has preserved you. He's allowed you to prosper. He's allowed you to have this or have that. He has been kind to you. We don't need to worry about what they will say in response to it. That's not, that's not our area. We need to have an answer if we can, yes. But the results are always left up to the Lord. And it is a blessing to be able to tell other people about Christ. So as we're looking at this whole thing, those are some of the things that we need to recognize. That one, it is the truth of God that brings us out of our sorrow and out of our grief. It is the truth of God that gives us joy in our times of sorrow. 
to remind us of the blessings that we have received of being adopted into the family of God, that he deals with us individually as his own because he cares for us. And out of our love and devotion to him, we go and tell others that they too may know that love and that fellowship with him. So let us take that example and let us put it into practice by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you so much for this portion of your word. Thank you for the blessing of Christ's resurrection, for his ascension, for the entirety of what he's accomplished on behalf of sinners. Thank you so much for the Spirit of God who resides within us, who walks with us, who consistently, continually unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are never forsaken. We are never alone. But we constantly have him working in us, applying your truth to our hearts. Father, let us see the blessedness of, of salvation. Let us remember it, reflect upon it. Take joy in it. Rather than looking at the things that happen in life that can steal our joy, let us be reminded of what Christ has accomplished and, and whose family we are part of. Allow that to work within us and to move us in order to, to reach out to others that they too, if it be your will, may be privileged to come into the family of God. Thank you so much for this passage. May it work in our hearts. May the Spirit of God give us a greater understanding and greater affection for you by it. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said.